Hey everyone and welcome to Risky Business, your weekly information security news and current affairs show. My name's Patrick Gray. Uh, Before we get going, uh, I feel like I should let you all know that I am doing another weekly podcast. We just started it up uh, last week and the plan is to do it weekly. A bunch of you uh, already subscribed to the Seriously Risky Business newsletter and uh, yeah, we're now doing a podcast to accompany it. So that's a weekly podcast with myself and Tom Uren, uh, who writes the newsletter. And that one is published into the Risky Business News podcast feed. And you, you can subscribe to that one by searching for Risky Business News in your podcatcher or by going to risky.biz slash subscribe. Uh, big thanks to our in-house security news champion, Catalin Kimpanu, for doing the audio editing on that one, uh, which is a, yeah, it's a huge help and he's doing a great job. Uh, This week's show is brought to you by Material Security. Material's co-founder, Ryan Noon, will be along in this week's sponsor interview, as will one of Material's customers. JJ Arga is the CISO of Compass, the online real estate company, and he's uh, joining us to talk about the experience of being a Material customer. And yeah, JJ will be talking about what they use Material for. And I actually found that one interesting because Material Material talks a lot about how it can do stuff like email redaction and protecting cloud email accounts in post-compromise situations. Uh, But JJ talks a lot about how they're using it to make phishing automation workflows really easy. And I know that for a lot of you out there in listener land, it's a boring problem, but it's a big problem. So yeah, do hang around to hear that one if you, I don't know, uh, use email, right? So um, yeah, relevant to to basically everyone. Uh, that is coming up uh, later on. But first up, of course, it is time for a check of the week's security news with our good friend, Adam Boileau. And uh, Adam, Shabbat Shalom, motherfuckers. <laughs> yes, uh, a number of steel mills uh, in Iran appear to have suffered some manner of misfortune uh, that, according to the videos posted on Twitter, uh, looks like quite a lot of molten stuff going places that it probably shouldn't. Um, It sounds like somebody who understands how steel mills worked, hooked up with somebody who understands how to hack things, uh, and decided to, you know, just uh, only hit Iranian steel mills that it's a subject of sanctions and very carefully avoid harming people whilst doing so. Mm. Yeah, because the people, activists claim credit for this, right? But they seem to have a pretty good understanding of the international laws of armed conflict. (laughs) You know, like international international law. Yeah, maybe Uh, some international relations students are members of this activist group and, uh, you know, studying for their their thesis. In one of the videos, you can see like, you know, it's it's even got text over it saying, look, you know, (laughs) they were very careful. And you can see people like leaving the building and then, you know, the explosions start getting a little more intense. You know, it's, um, but I mean, this, this is, this is what we've been waiting for, right? Which is uh, hackers making stuff blow up. It certainly is. And, uh, you know, the, uh, there are a few hackers that do have expertise at, you know, causing kinetic effects through cyber means. Activists, obviously. You know, it's been a long time coming to the point where someone's steel mill getting melted is just being posted on Twitter as a... You know, as a, hey, look, we hacked a thing. It's wild times. Yeah. I mean, you'd think, right, that the, you know, you talk to people in ICS security uh, about this stuff, and they usually tell you that the the best defense against this sort of stuff uh, happening is more in building steel mills that you can't make explode with the computers, I guess. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Building resilient systems, you know, not over computerizing everything, having, you know, mechanical interlocks, having all sorts of other things that are, you know, we, we understand how to build, but maybe isn't the cheapest or most modern way of doing things. I mean, sometimes the old, you know, the old ways before we had everything computerized do have some real benefits. You know, when you're building big, 
you know, systems that have, you know, this much kind of kinetic energy or this much, you know, kind of power or whatever else involved in them that you can make them, you know, go boom if you do understand the process well enough. And, you know, the idea that activist groups would understand and go to the effort of having all of the enough information, doing enough recon to understand any particular plant to be able to cause kinetic effect, well, like, it, it's obviously not even credible. But... Yeah. And it's the same activist group that's been responsible for a spate of, uh, of attacks against Iranian targets like, you know, train systems and whatever. Yes. And of course, these attacks kicked off after Iranian, suspected Iranian hackers were going after water infrastructure in Israel. And I think, yeah, yeah it's just classic Leroy Jenkins stuff, right? Which is Iran thought it would be a good idea to mess with Israel. And this is the sort of thing that happens when you do that. Yeah, I mean, this was the, this is the same group that is responsible for the like gas pumps displaying the like Ayatollah's phone number or whatever. Like if you want to call him about the fact that you can't buy gas with your, you know, state yeah. card or whatever, like here's his phone number, give me a ring. Yeah. So look, yeah. I, I've dropped a link into cyber scoops right up at this, but you know, the videos are all over Twitter and yeah, look very sparky. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know much about steel refining, but. That, that doesn't look, look good. Like, yeah, it yeah. doesn't look good. It does not look good. <laughs> that looks melty and sparky and bad. Now, meanwhile, the auto industry in uh, Japan having a difficult week. Um, there's been a bunch of APT attacks, a bunch of ransomware attacks sort of up and down the supply chain there. Probably the most interesting one, I think, is uh, we've got a report here from SecureWorks, which looks at a APT actor, uh, Chinese speaking, right, uh, that appears to be a ransomware crew, but they suspect they're just using ransomware as cover to do IP theft. And, and it's an interesting bit of analysis, this. Yeah, the, the SecureWorks report you know, ties up a bunch of the technical tooling and approaches and techniques uh, and you know links some of the activity together. But yeah, the idea that you know if you're in the point where you need to burn your access or you've been snapped or you need to distract from what's going on, obviously ransomware is a very, very easy way you know, to distract a defending adversary um, because you know if people have got playbooks you know they know how to respond like you know what they're going to do if you set off the ransomware alerts uh, so it's just a really really useful tool as a you know long-term sneakier you know intelligence focused you know intruder to then just use those playbooks use those techniques uh, against them um, so not at all surprising that we do see this done um, but i mean but how, yeah, how much of this do you think is just the the tactical decision to try to elicit a, a predictable response from the blue team uh, versus a broader strategic uh, uh, thing which is designed to to uh, obfuscate attribution, right? Because I feel like it would work well in time in terms of like distracting the blue team, getting a predictable response out of them. But as evidenced by the fact that we're reading about this in a blog post, it doesn't really help that much with long-term <laughs> confusion about attribution, right? Yeah, with creating I mean, was, that confusion. Yes. I mean, you know, we've seen it used more effectively in the past. And I think, you know, people are getting a bit more wise to the fact that this is a trick that you can use. But I mean, ransomware is, you know, also useful for straight up making money like the North Koreans do, um, you know, alongside intelligence gathering and other things. Obviously, disruption to supply chains, you know, a lot of that plays into Chinese, you know, Chinese geopolitical interests anyway. So there's a bunch of reasons to do it. And we don't really know what the blend of you know, as you say, tactical things versus national interest versus, you know, we've seen so much sidelining in like, let's just make some money while we're here, you know, supplement our paychecks or, you know, whatever else. So yeah, there's plenty of reasons to to do it. And it's hard to tell, you know, looking at a technical write-up where that, you know, what that breakdown is of motivation. Yeah. Yeah. It is hard. I mean, we'd just be guessing, wouldn't we? Yeah. 
Uh, meanwhile, a ransomware crew is going after a Linux-based voice over IP appliance that uh, you know sits on your gateway. No surprises there. Like that is the sort of thing uh, that these crews go after these days. They're going after your VPN gateways. They're going after your VoIP systems. They're going after your MDM solutions. So basically, if it's on your perimeter and it's got bugs in it, um, it's it's a yeah, it's going to be a ransomware party. Yeah, it certainly is. And the sorts of bugs we see in these things tend to be, you know, a bit more straightforward, you know, breaking into modern, you know, web systems. We put a lot of focus into, into securing web apps. Embedded systems, you know, things with management interfaces on the internet have been, you know, a really rewarding target for people. Um, this is the Mitel uh, MyVoice uh, appliance, which is particularly widely used uh, in, I think, the UK and the US. Uh, so there's quite a lot of them on the internet. Uh, so, yeah, if you do have one of those in your environment, it's probably time to go have a look yeah, everything's getting owned. I wonder how many APT crews are getting their access to all of the voice telephony burned by dumbass mm -hmm. ransomware crews, right? You know, like <laughs> maybe they're going to start patching these things to keep the ransomware crews out so they get to maintain their access. Yeah, that seems like a good idea. That's what I would do if I was there, but... Uh, I mean, these, yeah. are the, these are the sort of boxes that like, uh, what was that Linux Trojan? Like we spoke about it with the uh, Elastic guys uh, recently. What was it called? Uh, oh, BPF, BPF uh, door, yes, yes. right? This is the sort of appliance that BPF door was turning up on. So, yeah, exactly. And it's a perfect place to put that kind of thing on the edge of the network and, you know, COVID entry onwards uh, into the rest of the environment. Uh, these things are also quite big in Gov, so the sort of places that you'd expect to see, you know, high quality backdoors. Uh, so, yeah, it's, uh, if you've got them, it's definitely time to go have a look. Yeah, and if you own one and it's it's a useful uh, place for you to gather intelligence, go patch it immediately <laughs> on behalf of your target. Otherwise, uh, you're going to get IR'd and um, yeah, that wouldn't be good. Uh, I just wanted to mention a tweet from uh, Brett Callow, uh, who's a well-known ransomware researcher. Uh, he says that Lockbit has started doing like a reverse auction uh, on its uh, on on selling decryption keys to their victims, right? Like they've actually set their demands to automatically decrease over time. So the longer they wait, the less they have to pay. Uh, this to me seems like a pretty good sign that things are not great in ransomware land. Yeah, I think Brett Callow in the same thread said that he felt like, you know, they were having to adjust to changing market conditions, that they were, you know, innovating, looking for ways to try and get some money because, I mean, as, um, you know, if you can get, you know, half the amount, you know, it's still better than the zero and if that, you know, um, it means you have to reverse auction it or find some other way to, you know, get any value out of something, then, you know, it's, they're experimenting. And as you said, that, that suggests that things have become a bit more tough, you know, that there is some pressure there. Uh, and yeah, that, that seems good. It's sort of like Russia firing a bunch of generals lately. You know what I mean? Like, and everyone's <laughs> like, well, what does it mean? It's like, well, you, you don't fire people because things are going well. Uh, <laughs> you know, I think yes. it was the, yeah, yeah, yeah. the takeaway there. Yes. Uh, so uh, Catalan Kimpanu, uh, he, he was very helpful this week in helping me to come up with this run sheet. Uh, so, you know, we sit down together and, and, you know, bounce a few ideas around. Here's one that he found. It's a blog post from Talos and it's actually really, really funny where their researchers were able to find the real world IP addresses of a bunch of these ransomware Tor services because they were using the certificates they were using on the hidden service on the clear web. And so they just were able to take the certificate and showed it and then, oh, there it is on a box in Singapore sort of thing. It's very funny. <laughs> like is, these guys yeah. haven't read like some of these like OPSEC 101 guides for Tor <laughs> hidden services. Yeah, I mean, it's a fiddly process getting your Tor hidden service right. And, you know, we do see people make mistakes, but I mean, straight up just having the 
web server that is the back end of the hidden service exposed with you know, serving and, up like, the same certificate. Yeah. Yeah. Like you, you know, just search showed in by the certificate serial number and Hey, look, there it is. It's just, it is pretty comedy. Um, the researcher from Talos who wrote this up also was doing it with, uh, fav icons because you can, in showdown, you can search by fav icon hash. Um, yeah. so like, same thing, go to the tour hidden service, search the favic and hash on showdown find the other service there's also a bunch of other things they found of um you know misconfiguration uh, you know file traversal leading to file read leading to figuring out where the, the hidden service really was and a bunch of stuff like that so you know we've seen we've seen people you know doing all sorts of uh, of things taking advantage of um misconfigured admin portals and whatever else uh, by ransomware crews and other you know online crime people but this is just a very funny write-up blog post and uh well yeah. but they wrote it straight and it, i was so disappointed at the absolute lack of snark in this blog post because they wrote it as just a straight analysis and the comedic yeah. opportunities were aplenty uh, yeah maybe it's contrary to like you know cisco policy maybe you're not allowed to be snarky oh, totally on your, this on your is blogs. like this is like corporate blog style guide but i can tell you the people who wrote this would have been just like itching to throw in some jokes yes, you know yeah well so it's right we read between the lines we know how you really felt when you wrote this it's okay we understand you we get you you're our people. <laughs> a uh, Brazilian company called Fast Shop. Uh, it looks like they were getting extorted by some attackers who obtained some pretty deep access to their, their environment, both on-prem and cloud. And they also got their Twitter account. We're tweeting, hey, we got all your stuff, blah, 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 blah. I did find it actually quite interesting that the attackers were touting their access to this company's cloud assets, right? They're like, we've got your AWS. We've got your Azure. And I just sort of wonder if we're going to see more sort of extortions along those lines, which is, you know, we've got your cloud stuff and if you don't give us money, we're going to make it like horrible. We're going to just do all sorts of weird stuff to your cloud environment that'll be difficult to recover from. Yeah, I think this makes a lot of sense because, I mean, you know, we've seen ransomware crews say, hey, we've got domain admin, you know, we've got privileged access to your on-prem stuff. Obviously, they're going to go and do the same things in the cloud environments. But, yeah, it's, it is interesting to see that that's what they led with, you know, when they're, they're tweeting from this company's account. Like, that's what they say. vCenter, cloud stuff, AWS, Azure, IBM, GitLab rather than, you know, business systems or on-premise stuff uh, being the focus. So, yeah, that, that is an interesting angle. But it just goes to show they're going to do whatever works. And, you know, if that's where the great stuff is, there's no reason why all of these ransomware crews don't understand how cloud stuff works. I mean, you know, that's where they're going to go. I mean, I, I just feel like the the process of evicting an attacker from an on-prem network these days is pretty well understood. You call mm, it an incident response yes, firm, they're going to know yeah. how to do it. Whereas like these cloud mm-hmm. things, they're all snowflakes, right? How do you how do you <laughs> how do you go about evicting an attacker who's all up in your cloud stuff? Yeah, exactly, exactly, right? Because this stuff, as you say, is, is snowflake between the individual cloud providers and then it just changes so fast. You know, maintaining expertise um, and understanding of all of the AWS products and all of the Azure products and how all of the auth works and how to evict people. Uh, yeah, I mean, that's that's hard. Yeah, <laughs> so that's why I thought they might have a better shot at getting paid ransoming mm-hmm. the cloud stuff than the on-prem stuff because I'm sure there's people who can do it. There are some cloud security specialists out there who really know what they're doing, but I mean, I can't think of one off the top of my head, <laughs> you know, who would be up for a gig like that. You know what I mean? Yeah, yeah, exactly. This is a is a niche off the side of a niche that we are still building whilst we're trying to use it. And, you know, it's going to take, you know, the organizations that do instant response in that space um, it's going to take us a while to get to the point where we understand this stuff, right? I mean, it's it's yeah. very new and it's very changeable. 
Now, we've got a great report here from Akamai, and Tom Uren will be uh, going uh, into this one in a bit more depth in tomorrow's Seriously Risky Business newsletter. And of course, it's something that I will discuss with him on that show, but it is worth mentioning here. Uh, Akamai uh, uh, says that a bunch of like sneaker bots, right, are now snagging things like uh, government appointment reservations from Israeli government services and then selling them, right? So you can pay a hundred bucks to this scalper who's got a reservation with the passport office tomorrow. Now, some of you who follow me on Twitter might remember that last year, you know, we applied for my son's passport and we did it well ahead of time because we knew that there was going to be this massive rush of people applying for passports post-COVID. And then it took a long time and the passport office didn't answer its number and, and, and whatever. And I thought, oh, no, you know, uh, we, d- we didn't beat the rush. Turns out we did because in Australia right now, there are people literally like camping out in front of the passport office to try to get inside. I think they're building <laughs> pop-ups and stuff at, the, at these locations to try to clear the backlog. But evidently, this is a problem in Israel as well. And now the sneaker freaker bots are coming to sell you appointments for 100 bucks. It's just, I mean, this... I, th- I figured you'd want to talk about this one because you love uh, a good cyberpunk dystopia story. And I, yeah, yeah, I certainly do. And yeah, the funny thing is, the story started with you know some developers building this for their own, you know to get their own reservations, uh, you know, for appointments, open sourcing it to kind of share the you know the love around, and then now that's of course backfired horribly into all of the places being you know taken by scalping bots and then you know on sold in shady Telegram channels, and then it turned out that the same reservation system was actually used by a bunch of other israeli government departments as well and so now it's just turned into a you know like essentially kind of denial of service beyond what was already happening just through demand so that people can make money and that's i mean that's just messed up yeah (laughs) Uh, and you know like auctioning off access to government services is is, as you say that's a that's some cyber well my my concern is if they actually make a decent return on this we're going to see a lot more of it especially right now so i don't think this is something that would have been really possible a few years ago but the demand on services in general i don't know adam if you've been out of your house lately to try to do (laughs) i don't know anything Anything. but (laughs) you know it seems like there's just um the demand for everything out there uh is just exceeding supply so i just do wonder if this basically i think it puts governments on notice that they need to be aware that this is something that can happen um and they might want to look at some bot mitigation services casada is one that comes to mind i'm sure akamai will sell you that as well uh signal sciences and fastly right uh but this is probably a risk that needs to be addressed yeah, and it's certainly a, it's an unintended consequence of you know kind of trying to make it more easy and fair. We saw it with you know, in New Zealand. We saw it with um, uh, COVID uh, managed isolation, you know, slots and trying to get you know a slot to come into the country during you know during when we were at enforced managed isolation. Yeah, and they were struggling with the same thing of people botting it, um, yeah. and it all being horribly unfair. But so. my concern is even if it's even if the bot part goes away, you know, you could pay a call center in some other country or you know a bunch of people with a bunch of browsers to just go and make these slots. And if you can get 10 bucks per slot, well, you know, you're yeah, going to make money. Yeah, yeah exactly. Like it, it, anywhere where you can leverage your skills to make money. <laughs> yeah. We're going to see people give it a go. Yep. Uh, LNKs, Adam. LNKs <laughs> everywhere. Yes, uh, the LNK file format, like kind of shortcut thing has long been a you know thing we've used in, you know, triggering 
all sorts of interesting, you know, bugs and but in particular fishing for code exec. Um, there was a good write up um, from McAfee researchers looking at quite how prevalent it has become now because you know, it's workhorse technique, but it's really been picked up um, by you know everyone and his dog um, as they go through and, and try and get past a bunch of the other controls um, that people have in place. But yeah, it's it's the you know the sort of gold standard living off the land fishing for code exec technique these days. I was interested. There was a map in this McAfee blog post. Where which seemed to suggest that for some reason Pakistan is being hammered particularly hard with LNK files in the last in the last couple of months. So I don't know what's going on there, but a lot of, a lot of clicking on a lot of, a lot of clicking on links, I guess. Yeah, someone really wants some shells in Pakistan <laughs> by the looks of things. But yeah, I think it was the yeah proof points seen an avalanche of these things, right? And you know, this is a, this is not a particularly new or novel thing, but the fact that everybody's all of a sudden using it. Uh, is is interesting. And I've, I've sort of noticed that whipsawing is a lot more common these days when one crew will start using a technique and then the competition go, they, you know, there's FOMO, there's fear of missing out. They want to they wanna use that technique as well because they don't want those other people getting their malware onto those boxes ahead of them. So they, they all sort of tend to flock together like birds right when yes, it comes yes. to whipsawing between different techniques yeah. and i think that that cycle has just become much much faster like in some cases in the order of days you know when someone posts a new technique on infosec twitter and then you know it, it just gets picked up very very quickly it moves very quickly sometimes the detection or mitigation comes very quickly but it's just a you know no one's got time to sit around and have a weekend off you know it's everything's just so this cycle is so quick now um yeah it's a tough time being a defender now, here's another one that Catalan put on my desk. It's a write-up from uh, Kaspersky ICS CERT, uh, and it's about a Chinese APT crew. Yeah, most of it's like, you know, same old, same old, like pretty competent hacking. But where it gets interesting is it looks like they're using the building automation systems as their little hidey hole, as their little foothold on the network and as a bunch of systems that they can persist in. And I did find that part of this write-up extremely interesting. Yeah, some of these attacks are against telcos, some against manufacturing, some of them against, um, you know, other industrial parts in what, like uh, Pakistan, Afghanistan, uh, Malaysia even, um, and, you know, reasonable intelligence gathering targets. But yeah, persisting inside the building access control systems, you know, A, great place to hide, you know, because they're embedded systems that typically people aren't going to be looking at. B, it makes, you know, rolling incident response a bit more hard when you're in, you know, weird embedded systems, UPSs and building access controls and whatever else. Um, but then, of course, there is the added benefit that if you control the building access control system, like you have options for physical access, right? And if you end up in a really juicy environment and you lose your cyber options, you know, being able to just go walk in and reestablish access or, you know, use that for part of other operations. It's a great place to be both from a persistence and, a, you know, kind of action on objectives if you ever need it uh, sort of thing. So we've, you know, we've seen some reports of Chinese crews doing this in the past. I'm sure other people have done it as well. Uh, I know I've hacked a few building access control systems because, you know, it's a great place to go. So uh, the question becomes, like, how common is it that people are actually appropriately segmenting they're building control systems from their enterprise network. I mean, my experience has been it does happen to some extent. Like there is a degree of separation, but that separation is just never designed to resist a you know actually motivated, sophisticated adversary. You know, yeah. jumping across segregation. Like sure, people will whack a firewall in 
maybe some access control, maybe you have to go through a jump host, but none of these things are actually effective controls for someone who is privileged in the corporate environment, right? You can always jump on the firewall, you can always jump through the jump host, just follow the regular people who do the job and get your access there. So I don't think I've ever been in an environment where you can't get to these sorts of systems when even when they are segregated i'd imagine though as a defender your edge in this case would be that building automation networks or vlans or whatever are going to be pretty easy to monitor you know like funny funny activity on one of them is going to really stick out yes but you have to have had that focus i guess to go and put the sensors in to understand and baseline it but yeah these systems don't get updated often they don't change very often the access control should look very normal um you know it's a great place for you know, for monitoring a very low churn environment, but yeah, but, they have to do but it. who has who has time for yet yeah, one more thing no on the one, desk, right? Yeah, yeah, like, ain't yeah. no one got time, right? Everyone's too busy with you know PowerShell and and LNK files. Now, Google's tag has uh, published a new report, and uh, one of the interesting findings in it is there is a, a new kid on the block selling mobile spyware. It looks like an Italian company uh, uh, that is selling technology used on victims in Italy and Kazakhstan, according to this write-up of the report by Jonathan Grieg over at The Record. Yeah, this is a write-up of um, this RCS Labs malware, uh, which comes as a like you know application designed to look like a carrier app, like a Vodafone app or a, you know some other thing that's going to fix a problem on your phone. And the apps are like in the case of the iOS ones, uh, signed by an Apple Enterprise Developer Certificate, so you can kind of sideload them uh, onto the device, uh, and then it's being deployed like with some cooperation from the upstream ISP to block access to then trick people into thinking they need to use this, you know, reactivate your carrier settings, you know, Vodafone app or something. Um, And that's, you know, obviously suggests some tie up with the operator or the government or the environment. Yeah. Well, it's also, it's also a cheap and easy way to get shells, right? Because, you know, if you control the telco, you can say, turn off their IP access until they run this app. Yes, you know, exactly. make a problem that they have yes, to yeah, solve e- with this e- app. Exactly, yes. Yeah, disable mobile data access and then push this out as a thing they have to do to fix it. And, you know, that's... I mean, anyone who's ever got one of those, like, push carrier settings update messages and you have no way of knowing whether that's yeah. going to, you know hit your phone with azimuth technique or whether it's <laughs> whether it's like legitimately going to work um i mean yeah, I, yeah. i'm just picturing that sweating this the the dude sweating gif that people yeah. use because that's yes, been me yeah. in that situation yeah so they looked at um a bunch of mobile apps uh, and some bugs being used by them for previous and things um always useful to see the output of google tag because they have such great telemetry and great visibility um and you know, them keeping an eye on what's going on, letting us know which ones are, you know, commercial vendors, which ones look like APTs. It's just, yeah, it's a great perspective. And I'm, you know, I'm very glad that TAG is, you know, relatively open about this stuff. I'm, I'm guessing the um, exploit side of this would be there would have to be some sort of sandbox escape and, you know, privesque, right? Once you've got uh, the app yes. on the device. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's, that's what I imagine, yes. Yeah, cool. Um, we got a really nice little write-up here from Patrick Howell O'Neill over at MIT Technology Review, uh, talking about how you know the the spyware industry is going through a big transition at the moment with kind of the almost demise, kind of demise of NSO Group and whatever. Um, and look, it's a good write-up, but the reason that I wanted to talk about it is there's one paragraph in there where he notes that sources that he's spoken to says that this is an industry that's now kicking off in China. Did you also catch that? 
Yes, it makes a lot of sense that, you know, as NSO Group is kind of fracturing, you know, the market doesn't disappear. Lots of other people are going to be keen to, you know, step into that gap. And in some respects, NSO and the other, you know, Israeli Nexus companies that have been doing really well in this space, like at least Israel is kind of Western aligned, you know, there's some ability to apply pressure and all that kind of thing. I mean, but the, the fact of- that the fact that they're having such a hard time now, I mean, it, the, the wheels turn slowly, but they do turn they sort do of thing, turn. right? Whereas if, if you're dealing with like a Chinese equivalent to NSO, good luck. Yeah, well, exactly, right? And it's a, a, you know, the Chinese are always keen to go and, you know, work their influence, much how Israel was using, you know, the sale of NSO tools as a kind of a, you know, diplomatic sweetener, a bargaining thing. You know, you can absolutely see China doing this, you know, as part of Belt and Road or whatever else. Like, yeah. Into, you know, Here's Africa an interception or, capability for you, our friendly dictator who happens yes. to have some rare earth minerals. Yeah. Yes, it's, it, uh, exactly. Yeah. It's a, it fits together with a bunch of their strategic goals. Obviously, China has the technical skills to do it. They've got a bunch of expertise you know, if, you know, all the way up the stack from their, you know, manufacturing the hardware, the expertise with the software, great developers. It's just a, you know, if I were China, this would totally be a place to go invest a bunch in, uh, you know, and, and become dominant in that market. And it's bad for us and good for them. Yeah, I mean, it's bad not just for us. It's bad for a whole bunch of people. And yeah, it's well, really yeah. actually quite depressing when you yes. when you actually think it through. Yes. So something to look forward to. Uh, mm. Very advanced uh, NSO style implants from a Chinese company that is completely unmovable uh, and yeah. is doing business in all sorts of horrible places uh, for horrible regimes. Hooray. Hooray. NSO, but worse. Can't wait. Yes. <laughs> Can't wait. Okay. Maybe we'll be sad and wish we had NSO back. <laughs> There are laws being proposed uh, in the United States. It's been they're being proposed by a bipartisan group of senators uh, that would restrict data brokers from being able to sell information on U.S. citizens to nations like China and Russia. And the the fact that data brokers can sell stuff to nations like uh, China and Russia on <laughs> like things like location data and whatever. I mean, it's just insane. So this is this is legislation that's long overdue. But again, it just shows us that the United States really needs to think about having some sort of data handling law generally, you know, even maybe some restrictions on what can be collected and why. Yeah, yes, exactly. I mean, you know, we certainly saw a lot of, you know, concern around, you know, like data breaches from, you know, like location information for military, members of the US military, like running apps and things, and all the work that um, Joe Cox over Vice Motherboard has done, you know, understanding the data broken ecosystem. This feels like a, a pretty small kind of point fix you know like let's just solve the military member data or something like that well when, i think it's i think they're actually going to identify which types of personal data yes, could harm yeah. u.s national security and designate which countries would require licenses to be exported to blah, blah 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 so i don't think it's just for military people um but that certainly was where a lot of the concern came from yeah national security centric data you know things like that and defining that you know, does lead towards, you know, the US just needs a more sensible privacy regime, right? A more sensible data handling regime, you know, to decommercialize some of this stuff. Um, you know, we've seen, you know, concern around, you know, police being able to buy data from from data brokers rather than have to go through the warranting process. Like the whole thing is, you know, needs a pretty comprehensive overhaul to be effective. Yeah. But does. on the other hand, right, I mean, solving a problem now is better than perfectly solving a problem 10 years from now. Um, let's go back to some more bread and butter security, Adam. And uh, we got some Five Eyes info. Well, it's out of the US, UK, New Zealand. Uh, they've issued some guidance on PowerShell and they haven't done the dumb thing, which is to just tell people not to use it. They're kind of saying, well, here's maybe some ideas for how you can use PowerShell in your organization safely. 
Yeah, and I think this is part of the kind of ongoing, much more sensible, much more pragmatic guidance we're starting to see out of the you know the Five Eyes governments because they've got real problems to solve and they are having to solve them in the real world. Uh, you know, rather than you know, I, you know, I'm a pen tester by trade. I have certainly written reports that you know give mitigation advice that's really dumb, like I'm just doing off PowerShell, which you know is not a practical thing in a modern large Windows environment, and indeed you know, the state of PowerShell now versus PowerShell V1, you know, in terms of the other, other controls of monitoring of the AMSI interface, of all those sorts of things that you can put in place uh, to use it for its good purposes of managing environment without necessarily making it the world's best living off the land binary. Um, so more nuanced, more realistic guidance uh, is exactly what we need um, yep. from our, you know, advisory agencies. Yeah, and I've linked through to that guidance. Uh, it's a cybersecurity information sheet, and uh, it is linked through to in this week's show notes. Uh, don't want to really talk about this one too much, but Pat Howell O'Neill, uh, again, has a great story up for MIT Technology Review, looking at a Chinese online disinformation campaign targeting uh, rare earth mineral mining outside of China. And what they're trying <laughs> to do is build up and, and boost um, environmentalist uh, environmental protests against rare earth mining in other countries because, of course, China does a lot of rare earth mining uh, in its own lands and um, that's a bit of a strategic edge for it so it doesn't really want the rest of the world building up much of a capability there. It's just a fascinating read. Yeah, yeah, it makes, makes a whole bunch of sense, especially given you know that China can mine it very cheaply without environmental concerns so imposing costs on other manufacturers making it uneconomical to build that capability in other places yeah totally smart very china move now you remember a while ago and i can't remember if this actually ran in the show or if i cut it out i think it ran where we were talking about these north koreans who are applying for jobs with western tech firms like partially just so that their salary gets garnered garnished by the DPRK, right? And it brings a bit of money into the motherland. <laughs> and also partly because they might find some intelligence or an opportunity to steal stuff. Like, But either way, there are North Koreans like applying for work from home jobs with Western tech companies. I got an FBI uh, public service announcement in front of me here, Adam, which um, doesn't mention North Korea, <laughs> but it does talk about uh, mysterious people applying for work from home positions. Uh, and they're using deep fake audio with poorly matched video and imagery so it looks like what they're doing is just playing video of someone like on a teams meet or something uh and doing deep fake real-time audio but the lips don't match the audio and stuff and there's a like there's an <laughs> fbi bulletin here telling people like maybe you should be careful of that like if someone's if someone on the screen is coughing and sneezing but you can't like hear it um it's probably sus <laughs> which is a crazy time it's a crazy time to live in and like you just gotta admire you gotta hand it to them you gotta hand it to the north koreans for you know, putting the pipeline together and giving it a good old-fashioned go, right? I mean, I mean, to be clear, they don't mention DPRK. But that's the okay, first yes, thing yes, I thought yes, about, but. like, when I saw it. But you wonder, too, like, when the deepfake stuff gets better yes. and you can't just tell that it's, like, a crappy deepfake. Like, what yeah. then? Yeah, well, exactly what then? I, I mean, I don't know how you're supposed to vet your employees during hiring when, yeah, you're just dealing with a deep fake or, you know. And imagine once the ML gets better and they can ace the interview because they've optimized the, you know, yes, the data yeah, set yeah, yeah. with like how to ace an interview. And yeah, then you yeah. might wind up hiring, uh, you know, a bunch of code. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Wait, then the code will just work 24 hours a day. We don't have to pay it health benefits. Hmm. Mm, capitalist spidey senses tingling. This is innovation. Yeah, can, as long as they do their job okay, it's fine. Let's yeah. not discriminate. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, oh, <God. laughs> 
The Daily Swig, which is Port Swigger's news outlet, reports that uh, the UK is introducing a statutory defence for ethical hacking under its uh, Computer Misuse Act. This comes shortly after the US DOJ issued guidance to prosecutors uh, suggesting that they shouldn't charge people when they've been doing, under the CFAA, when they've been doing good faith research. It's good to see that this is a trend. I mean, this is stronger than what the US did, but it's, it's just good to see this general trend where, you know, hey, if someone happens to stumble upon a bug in your website and report it to you like maybe you don't want to charge them because this is a battle that's been fought for 20 years i'm just glad to see it going this way yeah it's nice to see sense kind of prevailing and it's also just really useful to have some clear guidelines of you know what do you have to do to make it look like good faith security research or actually be good faith security research i suppose yeah um you know, so that you have some standards and, and you know, then people know where they are and can, you know, choose to be on the right side of the law. And that would just be a really nice place to be because, I mean, even commercial bug bounties, sometimes it's still really unclear, you know, sometimes there isn't enough detail. So having some legal backstop, you know, is just good comfort for those of us that hunt bugs. Yeah. Uh, now, I just want to talk a little bit about the Daily Swig because I think there's a bit of confusion out there about what it actually is. Okay. So uh, I have no business relationship with Port Swigger, by the way. This is just something that I feel I wanted to say. Uh, the Daily Swig is staffed by journalists, some of whom have been in the industry for a very long time, at least one that I can think of off the top of my head. Uh, it's an outlet we keep on uh, keep our eyes on because sometimes we talk about stories that run there. So the Daily Swig is not a corporate blog. And this week I've seen some people very angry on Twitter because uh, – the Daily Swig wrote a story about the B-Sides Cleveland organisers uh, stepping down after they did something very foolish, which was to uh, add a surprise guest as a speaker at their conference who happened to be uh, some guy who's been like banned from DEF CON, banned from, from Black Hat, uh, apparently for code of conduct violations, right? So the thinking is that they didn't put his name on the bill because... Um, because uh, they knew there'd be a backlash and then he was a surprise. And then, you know, later they said that's not what happened. But I don't know. The, the whole thing, it's not really uh, uh, important to what I want to mention here. The Daily Swig ran a story uh, about the B-Sides Cleveland organiser stepping down. Uh, and in part of that story, they cut and pasted a response uh, from the, the speaker in question. Um, and people got really mad. And they're saying that they're not going to buy Burp Suite anymore and they're looking for alternatives because they think that, you know, this is uh, uh, Portswigger somehow platforming someone who's, um, uh, you know, uh, apparently violated a, a bunch of code of conducts and, and whatever. I, I haven't followed that part too closely. The thing that I just wanted to mention, though, is that right, right of reply is quite important in journalism. You can't just write a story about someone and not really offer them right of reply. Now, would I personally have cut and pasted the entire statement into a story? Probably not. Um, I, 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 I would have, you know, trimmed it down a little or whatever. But it seems a lot of people are mad at the Daily Swig for doing by-the-book journalism. And I, I just wanted to mention that, you know, this is an outlet sort of like Threat Post was for Kaspersky, sort of like the record is for um, uh, for Recorded Future. It's, it's, as best I can tell, it's an arm's length outlet. It funds journalism. And if you make a big deal out of stuff like this, then it's going to make companies a little bit more gun-shy about funding this type of journalism, right? And I don't think that's an outcome anyone wants. So I just wanted to put my two cents out there. Does that make sense? Yeah, that does. It makes a lot of sense. And, um, you know, I felt reading that piece, it was pretty clearly labelled as a statement from, like, as it has the headline statement uh, above that section, and it seemed pretty clear that they weren't 
you know, I mean, platforming it in, in the sense that I think people meant on Twitter, but it's also. Well, been I think a pretty... it's because someone someone actually just screen capped that part of the statement right, and then yes. tweeted it, and you know, it just sort of went from there. But like, this is you know, right of reply is just something that you kind of have to do, even when it's a reply that you don't necessarily want to platform. I mean, it's it's a legal protection as well because you don't want to be sued for defamation, and you know, it's just this is this is how it works. And if we have people screaming about about a story that's running on an outlet that's essentially, you know, sponsored and funded by a vendor. Vendors just aren't going to do it anymore. And when you look at the amount of news that we cover that comes from outlets like The Record, comes from outlets like The Daily Swig, and these places are fantastic um, academies too for up-and-coming journalists. So I just wanted to put it out there that maybe uh, blaming Portswigger for this, getting angry with them, uh, probably not going to have the outcome that you want. Yes, yeah, seems counterproductive. Um, CISA has released a report and uh, in that report they've proposed a 311 emergency uh, uh, call line for small businesses experiencing cyber incidents. I think it's a good idea. I think the problem is you're going to need like, you know, six million people to staff the call centre. <laughs> exactly. I, I, I can't imagine how much call volume something like that would get. I mean, at the very least, it might be a useful thing to collect statistics, whether or not they can provide meaningful help at yeah. scale. Like that sounds like a really hard, a really hard ask. But hey, more data, more understanding of the size of the problem would even in itself be really useful because then you can go have the conversation about how much it would take uh, yeah. to do a good job of that. So interesting to see where this goes, um, and you know, more power to them if they manage to pull it off. CISA and the US Coast Guard have uh, put out some info too about how log four shell attacks against VMware gear are still happening. Uh, so that's uh, probably something. To, I mean, I'm just, I'm just amazed that there are log for shell vulnerable VMware appliances out or VMware installations out there that haven't been rinsed yet. Uh, Cause this apparently <laughs> is an attack that happened in May. Yes. I mean, maybe attackers are being, you know, kind of nice and cooperating and sharing the access rather than shoring up the entry point after them. But uh, yeah, I'm also surprised that not every piece of VMware kit has been totally shelled since then. Oh, and there's a CISA Cybersecurity Advisory Committee draft report to the CISA director uh, that people can check out in the show notes. There's some interesting stuff in there, like a bunch of recommendations like, hey, maybe everyone should use 2FA, you know, like just <laughs> sensible stuff, but let it trickle through. Uh, that's all good. Uh, we've got a, uh, a great story from Krebs. Classic Krebs here. It's such classic Krebs. Such classic Krebs. Krebs on security. Uh, Brian Krebs has uh, doxed the operator of the RSOX proxy botnet. Now, this is one of those botnets. I think it was made up of IoT devices or like home routers and whatever that would allow you to sort of anonymize your location and whatever. And um, yeah, Krebs found him. <laughs> yeah. Krebs has like pictures of the guy's passport and a bunch of history of, you know, domains he registered 15 years ago, all of the classic kind of Krebs OPSEC putting together dumps from, you know, kind of forums and, you know, historical domain registrations and ICQ numbers. Um, one of the one of the sources Krebs is using in particular here was um, uh, the guy that ran this botnet, Mr. Dennis Kloster, at one point uh, got into some trouble on a forum that he'd signed up for uh, and uh, he ends up kind of making, pleading his case with the administrator and providing a bunch of his credentials. Like, oh, I used to run this spamming forum that's really popular and I worked in this, you know, botnet, blah, 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 blah. Uh, so yeah, of course, those forums get hacked, all the messages get dumped and then Krebs gets to use that as source material. Um, so yeah, just classic Krebsing. Um, apparently at some point this guy had like what 20 people working for him managing this uh, you know bot there's sort of like a like a business there's a wonderful company photo uh yes. that's totally worth reading the piece for um because that's kind of exactly what you imagine a, a bunch of russian bot herders uh, might look like in their office so yeah just classic krebsing and you know well worth reading even just for the schadenfreude 
Yes, exactly. Um, Splunk has patched some horrible bug and have been a little bit slow to port that patch to earlier versions, right? And this is another write-up from the Daily Swig. Yeah, this was a bug in Splunk where you could like push out updates to, you know, nodes out in the network. That sounds um, fine. So like it's just code exec, you know. <laughs> um, but yeah, it's uh, affected versions of Splunk, you know, like prior to nine and a bunch of those are currently not really supported anymore. And yeah, Splunk has been dragging their heels about whether or not they're going to provide a, an update. They've now said that they're going to work on plans to backport the fix to unsupported versions. But yeah, given how big some people's Splunk deployments are and obviously if the impact is, well, we can go deploy code out to all the edges. Yeah, it's, it's not great. So Splunk, you know, they, it sounds like they handled the initial bug fine, but then, you know, not dealing with legacy versions and they're kind of the realities of how their customers use the product. Well, that's the thing. Not... Naughty customers for using old Splunk, but naughty Splunk for not factoring that in. Yes, exactly. And um, you know, regardless of kind of the letter of it, right? Yes, you should have upgraded and you shouldn't be running out of that software. Like it's just, it doesn't get them any goodwill, you know, amongst their user base who now have to scramble and do unplanned upgrades or whatever else to try and deal. Yet one more from the Daily Swig this week, Adam and uh, Oracle. <laughs> oh, oh, this is the thing. This, oh, I'm just. I'm not even going to introduce oh, this story because this is all you go. Oh, this, it's beautiful. This is a beautiful thing. Um, so there's a couple of researchers, uh, Mr. Peter Jason and Jang, reported some flaws to Oracle, which kind of boiled down to some bugs leading to code exec through serialization in the Oracle's Faces framework, which is, you know, like deep, deep, deep in their application framework that's used by you know, like hundreds of Oracle products. Uh, or, you know, it's part of the Fusion middleware stack platform thing. But, I mean, it's just used everywhere, even in Oracle's you know, own cloud infrastructure. And so the impact of this is, like, if you can put data in front of Faces, which is kind of used for, like, session management um, in, in Oracle web apps, then you can just turn that into code exec via deserialization. Uh, and they reported this to Oracle. Obviously, Oracle doesn't patch these things particularly fast, plus the process of pushing out a patch and something like this means they have to, re, you know, push out updates for hundreds of complicated enterprise products. Not a fast process, not a rewarding process for any Anybody, but this stuff is just used everywhere you see Oracle things and this stuff lives forever. And so yeah, bugs like this just make me make me happy. CVSS um, and it probably shouldn't. 9.8. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and the point too is you didn't get shelled yet. Yeah. Uh, pretty amazing. Yeah, so I'll drop a link in uh, to the to the daily yeah. swig write up on that and people can check yeah. it out. But I just as soon as I saw like, you know, <laughs> CVSS 9.8 in Oracle mm -hmm. application framework. I'm like, yeah, yeah I think Adam's going to like this one. So, yeah, uh, I mean like Oracle's access manager, like the thing they'd use to do like access management has this bug in it. Um, yeah. So it's just, and the blog, the blog post and the research is just great. Totally worth writing if you're into hunting down Java deserialization primitives and, and new gadgets and stuff. It's, it, it's just a great blog post. Totally read it. Uh, I've just got a reading list item now to mention, which is the US Government Accountability Office has uh, pumped out a bunch of material on uh, on uh, cyber insurance, right? And looking at what it thinks Treasury and Homeland Security need to do in terms of a federal response to addressing the sort of cyber insurance uh, shortfalls, right? Because like, I think in some of these policies, it's like, they only cover you if it's an act of terrorism and whatever. And I think they're realizing there's a bit of a coverage gap. And yeah, so um, I've, I've linked through to that for those who are interested in the um, intricacies of the cyber insurance market and and uh, how that might interact with the US government. Uh, and then cue the Benny Hill music because we're going to talk about crypto. Uh, there's been a 100 million theft 
uh, from a blockchain company called Harmony. Uh, what else do you say there? Oh, yeah, someone stole $2 million in Counter-Strike Go skins, which <laughs> I think original, is kind of interesting. The original, the original uh, NFT. The original <laughs> NFT. So Some that's, good Twitter, uh, Twitter wit there. Uh, yeah. Yes. But they're stolen, stolen straight out of Steam too. Like that's just, it's classic. It's a, but I mean, are, are these blockchain things? Like, can't they just get them back? Like, how does this, I'm so confused. <laughs> and this isn't know. even a crypto story. It's just dumb stuff being stolen story. Yeah. But anyway. Yeah, uh, dumb digital property being stolen. And there's another one called uh, X Carnival Lab was exploited in a bunch of uh, transfers leading to a gain of 3,087 ETH, which is at the time was 3.8 million um, uh, for the hacker. So I got, no, you know, no idea what even that means, but it's it's pretty bad. So, you know, the trash fire that is crypto is just continuing. It's so funny because last time crypto blew up, it was Bitcoin, right? And ICOs. And this time it's all this NFT stuff. And then all of the crazy um, like crypto banks and stuff that were like giving credit multiple times for the same collateral. So there's just been this gargantuan deleverage. It's sort of like the global financial crisis, but for crypto, because they recreated the pre-2008 like financial system. It's just so... Yeah, speed running the financial system. <laughs> Basically, yes. Yeah. I think this was like a, like a re-entrancy, like buying the same NFT multiple times or selling. There was some kind of like NFT leveraging rubbish thing as well uh, with this Carnival Lab thing. Um, I think they have actually been negotiating the blockchain with the hacker uh, and the bounty numbers were up to like maybe the hacker's going to get to keep half of it. Like nice. 1.8 million. Will they agree for, not to press charges? Because Adam, I think you and I, we need to change the I, way I mean, we work. It sounds, sounds like a business model. <laughs> <sighs> And finally, I just wanted to say a big old shout out to uh, Dave Cottingham and Daniel Shell and Richard Rundle over at, uh, they're the founders of Airlock Digital because uh, they've just taken a big investment from uh, CyberCX, which is your company, Adam, uh, which is, which is yeah, fantastic. Mm-hmm, indeed, we are you know happy customer and now a happy investor in, in Airlock Digital. So yeah, big congratulations to them. You know, it's great tech uh, and, you know, they'll be able to take that money and uh, use it to onwards to the rest of the world. That's great news and everyone knows I know those guys pretty well and I, I really like the product so just wanted to share that news with everyone but Adam that is actually it for the week's news uh, thanks a lot for joining us now you're not going to be doing the show next week because uh, I'm actually heading across to B-Sides Cheltenham uh, so if you are in the neighbourhood uh, and uh, want to catch up, I'll be around there. But I mean, I'm in transit during next week's recording, so uh, I think my erstwhile colleague, Mr. Mark Piper, uh, will be filling in for me. Um, but yeah, look forward to any listeners uh, who are around that neck of the woods. Uh, hit me up and uh, we can have a chat. Excellent. Um, well, you enjoy your travels, my friend, and I'll speak to you in a couple of weeks. Yeah, thanks so much, Pat. Talk to you then. That was Adam Boileau there with a check of the week's security news. It is time for this week's sponsor interview now with JJ Aga, the CISO of Compass, and Ryan Noon, co-founder of this week's sponsor, Material Security. So Material is a different type of email security firm. They don't do malware filtering. Uh, they basically take a copy of all of your mail and stick it on a big data platform, uh, then use your mail provider's API to manipulate your user's mail in their inboxes. So you can do things like limit the amount of mail that users have access to. You can auto redact PII and other sensitive uh, uh, information out of messages. And you know, if the user wants to retrieve a certain message or unredact some uh, information or expose a certain link, 
you hit them with a 2FA challenge, right? So that keeps attackers away from that sort of information if they have compromised a mailbox. And you can even do stuff like prevent lateral account takeovers by disallowing password resets for all services uh, by email without a 2FA challenge, right? So attacker takes over a mailbox, tries to reset someone's Dropbox and material just grabs it and redacts the reset link, right? And if the, the user still wants to actually reset their Dropbox link, they can do an MFA challenge and then they get the link and then they can they can proceed, right? So they do all of this via API magic and it is, it's really cool stuff and it's very, very clever. Uh, bear with me here for a moment, but you know, the way I think about zero trust is your cloud accounts are kind of your new endpoints, right? And relying on 0365 or Google accounts, you know, their base levels of security, probably not going to cut it in the future, right? So I expect we're going to see more businesses like Material. Uh, you know, Material's just focused on email, but we'll see more businesses focusing on the cloud account security side of things. Anyway, so I, I just spelled out some of Material's exotic use cases, but one of Material's customers is about to join us to talk through how they've used Material to make their phishing automation and uh, phishing workflows not a giant pain in the ass. And, uh, you know, this is funny to me because while the really clever stuff that Material does is awesome, everyone, absolutely everyone has issues with their phishing workflows and automation. So I imagine this interview will resonate with like pretty much everyone who has to do this stuff. Uh, anyway, here is JJ Aga, the CISO of Compass, talking about how they're using the herd immunity feature, that's their phishing stuff in, in Material, uh, how they're using the herd immunity feature of Material Security. I hope you enjoy this interview, cheers. So specifically when with the phishing and herd immunity, when we start looking at submissions, right? The, the, the herd immunity product really helps out saying, all right, great, how can we aggregate a bunch of uh, findings, right? How many submissions can we say, okay, how can we protect not just the one or two individuals, but the entirety of the company? And so what we've really done is taking kind of that submission and looking at those uh, you know, data field, the headers, email headers, all the different information that we could pull from material securities APIs and leveraging the product that we call internally uh, Captain Compass, but essentially it's built off of Airflow to automate a lot of our processes. But uh, the team has done a great job and essentially we're automating the all the checks that a security analyst would do, right? Is this a new domain? Is this, is there any contents in this, right? We're trying to enrich all the work that a analyst would do because we're essentially running a sockless program within the company. Uh, and then automating the actual action. And right now we're at about 90% plus you know, true positive rate on actual auto closure of these submissions and our on call when we're on call, everyone loves it. And I think everyone in security kind of just quivers when that, that beeper gets passed to them with ops genie or pager duty start say, Hey, your schedule's next week. Our team now is like, okay, this is actually enjoyable. And so with that data, with that information and how we're just trying to automate it really are just improving, not just the operational cadence, but now actually allowing us to, to, to act on more of the tactical and strategic root causes that are, are occurring at, within the company and within the program as a whole. I mean, there's some of that grunt work in security, right? That people who've never worked in it, you know, actually in the trenches don't realize how much work there is behind it. I think one of those things is patching, right? That's the, that's the obvious example. Um, patching and vulnerability management is just a gargantuan effort everywhere. Um, but another one is this phishing stuff, right? And, and triage, and triage, remediation, investigation, like the amount of work, just the amount of hours that actually go into that stuff is pretty stunning when you really look at it. So I can understand why, 
you know, why a tool where, I mean, I'm guessing how this works is one user flags something and then it gets kicked over for like an automatic investigation. If it trips enough uh, uh, rules that you've set up, you could just use the API and go out and nuke similar messages from your entire email database, even after they're delivered, right? Yeah, and even just providing context to the users, right? So even if you want to take a passive approach and say, hey, user X, user B, other folks inside your corporation has now, you know, your org has flagged this, take caution. And so I think there is now that there's that passive, provide context to the users to make better decisions. And then to your your second you know, point is actually take action. And for us, we're actually taking action. So yes, there's some false positives when people submit it, right? It's the spam emails, there's a lot of noise, hey, I don't wanna look at it. We're, we don't wanna really take action on that. So our automation, our processes, leveraging the data that we could get has just been, you know, the goal is to reduce mean time to remediation, right? Especially for phishing, business email conference, any of these types of attempts, the main goal is to reduce mean time to remediation, right? To something that is as automatable and as scalable as possible, right? Because it is costly. Every time a phishing submission comes in, the signal to noise ratio is typically high. How can we do, you know, reduce that as a whole? And so for us, that's been you know the main goal is, and I have you know one large OKR for the entire team is MTTR as a whole. But what we saw was a large reduction in our MTTR by almost like 40% once we started automating the material security submissions to us, you know, then the phishing, uh, you know, was reduced by, you know, 10, 10, 12 hours. And that was really the big goal for us of, of automation, right? Getting timely responses so that this wasn't dwelling, this wasn't a vulnerability that existed, you know, so treating phishing as a vulnerability. Yeah, bringing that time loop forward so that once you've had a report of something malicious that's hit like 50 mailboxes in your org, the time it takes you to remove those emails is lower, right? For sure, right? That that time loop, every time we get five, 10, and then we're just looking at that queue pick up, it's a slow, you know, we're now looking at, okay, get additional information, get additional information. And that human context, that cognitive load slows down the response, right? Because you're trying to get aggregate, all that information, what is common, right? What can we contextualize out of it? And so by just pulling that in with the herd immunity, I no longer have to have an analyst look at it, right? We're, we're aggregating all that information to then deduce and make a decision based off of it with 70, 80% of that information. And that's when we add and enrich on top of material security to then automate the processes within our detection response platform to get that 90% plus true positive rate on automation and just auto closure, which is the mm. key to, to any you know, scalable platform or any scalable you know, product and solution that you want. You, you don't want to pull every single lever because every, every product you bring in, the cost to bring in that product, that cost to operationalize becomes heavy. And so the more that we could do of having a trusted product and a trusted platform that we could integrate with that I know is going to respond the way I expect it to respond, that supports my SLAs and SLOs, that's something that you know, I will, will go to bat and constantly want to integrate with. Mm. And I mean, it's, it sounds like a big part of the appeal of material for you is just having like a great API that you can use to pull information from and manipulate mail, right? Yeah, I mean, it's a, like it's, it's, a, it's the simple part that is powerful. Yeah, I mean, it's a big data platform that also solves and, and le- you know, has levers to support from, you know, again, phishing herd immunity or leak prevention, right? The idea to look at and prevent uh, even specifically for, for leak prevention of knowing that this data might go out, 
I want to look at that content. I want to understand right, all the metadata and tag to say, hey, what are we seeing in our mailboxes? Are we seeing SSNs? What, what data uh, are our challenges there that we actually want to prevent? And then actually you know, pr- block that from, so if an ATO does occur to one of our accounts, that I'm not worried about everything leaving, right? It's, it's a slow trickle and then you're adding multiple gates. And so that really just helps out, not just from you know, the, the automation aspect, but just slowing down the attacker. And slowing down the attacker gives me more time to respond, which is, is one of the most valuable pieces, right? It reduces the blast radius as much as possible. Uh, we're also joined by Ryan Noon, who's the co-founder of uh, Material Security. And for about the last four minutes or something, he's been like, oh, 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 sort of bobbing up and down because <laughs> I know he wants to say something. Ryan, here's your chance to jump in. Oh, yeah. I mean, before when we were talking about, you know, phishing response, like the state of the art for most folks, you know, I love that that JJ's team is so sophisticated with automation. Like it's the kind of team that like I would want to work on, frankly. But like people always think, OK, user reports something. Like we got to like have a lot of butts and seats to like look at it really quickly because the clock is ticking. You know, once this report comes in, like other people are going to fall for it. And what we realized that we could do that, you know, they're benefiting from uh, is like you can change emails with the APIs after they're delivered if you know how to. People always think, well, as soon as you know that it's bad, you should pull the email. But like that is very vulnerable to false positives because there's a ton of false positives. So yeah, that yeah, yeah. You don't want to make the you like, don't want to make the message go away. You can just take the links out of it, and yeah. you can do a pointy, clicky challenge, kick it up to a help desk if you want to unmask those links. Right? Yeah, we we do an even simpler thing by default. Everybody kind of does it differently because we don't we don't force any given configuration on folks. But like we just call them like speed bumps. You know, if someone tries to hit the links or the attachments or the other payloads, you just say, hey. Uh, and this is this is what we kind of suggest as the default because not everybody you know has has folks responding to these things. But like you know, someone clicks on something and says, "Hey, you know, other people at the company reported this as suspicious." We don't you know, or something similar to this as suspicious. We don't know if it's good or bad yet. So like, just promise me, like, double confirm that you know what you're doing before I let you go through. And so if you auto remediate with that. But within a couple seconds and you apply it to everything that could be part of the same attack or from the same actor, then like, you know, you can buy yourself a ton of leverage. It's not the end of the world if the super smart people who know how to actually triage these things deeply come in 20 minutes later because within 10 seconds, I at least speed bumped all of the other payloads on anything that could have been similar. So this like, you know, the, the, the false positive impact is actually a lot lower because people are just double confirming or triple confirming before you let them go through. You know what I mean? Yeah, so you're just giving them a signal that not everything is great, right? And, right? and JJ, is that the configuration that you use? Yeah, so we have the speed bumps and we kind of pull out those links. I think the, the biggest thing to kind of hop on, and I was going to use the word tar pitch, but speed bumps is definitely a great point, is the idea that the business needs to operate. And so any challenge when we you know, discuss any of these security products that come in, it's how do you actually support the business velocity by also having the appropriate security controls. And I think you know, when you look at the speed bump and that methodology, that enforces and ensures that the business can continue to operate because they have one of the best contexts. The business, the user who is actually receiving that email is legitimate or not. And so you know, that false positives, and when we discuss automation, we're automating five to 10% of things that we truly know we need to automate, right? Based off of like very malicious, hard signals that are somewhat binary, right? It's a yes or no kind of decision. And we make we make 20 or 30 ask of yes or no, and then apply that across multiple data sets. 
where we look at from like those speed bumps, those are the things that allow us to breathe at night, right? It's that attack-driven defense kind of idea, right? It's that idea that, know what, we know it's gonna have speed bumps. It's okay for the business to continue to operate. Once enough speed bumps are triggered or once enough folks have submitted that, that gives me enough time to then respond or take the appropriate actions, even if it's not fully remediated. That is what allowed us to kind of walk, crawl, and run. And, and for us, that's the immediate, like, how do I get this product in, right? You don't get into this super mature state of it, right? We're just dealing with 40,000 mailboxes. That's a different problem than a lot of organizations have to deal with, right? So for us, automation, that helps us scale and keeps us lean and, and pr provides the ability to, to, to scale as a company and a team without having multiple people. But, you know, if you're, if you have a normal staff security program and you're supporting five, 10,000 mailboxes, that that's more than, than enough, right? I'm talking about the most extreme use cases. No, no, I mean, one, 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 one thing that's really coming through here, right, is like, uh, you know, Material's been a sponsor since it was, you know, a little baby startup. And now it's a unicorn. Congratulations on that, Ryan. You got the uh, you got the unicorn valuation just before the VC market slid in completely <laughs> into the shitter. Your timing is fantastic. So congratulations on that. Um, Thank you. So what, what's interesting here is the original pitch, Ryan, was the Podesta thing, right? Like, how do you prevent that from happening? How do you lock down a mailbox so that if someone gets access to it, it's not game over? But I think really what we're talking about here is a use case that's a, that's a little bit different, which is kind of a recognition that the default mail setups for, you know, 0365 and, and you know, Google's equivalent, it's not really an enterprise product, <laughs> you know? I mean, it'll deliver mail for you and stuff, but it's not very flexible. There's not a lot you can do with it. So you guys have essentially said, okay, well, we're just going to take all of the customer's mail, put it in a different data warehouse and build a nice API for it and let them do a bunch of stuff. I mean, that's the, you know, it's enterprise grade cloud mail. I mean, how's, how's that sound? Yeah, I mean, you have to build a complete solution, but you also have to like enable teams that are in incredibly sophisticated to be their best. And so I think my tombstone will likely have some variant of like, easy things should be easy, hard things should be possible. Like that's kind of like my favorite saying. Uh, and so, yeah, I mean, out the box material does a bunch of obviously useful things. Like even on like, you know, personal accounts, like we protect people who are not sophisticated on their, you know, Hotmail and Gmail accounts. Like that's, that's okay. But when you have a team with a handful of really great engineers protecting 40,000 people, uh, you have to get them leveraged too. So I'm, I'm very happy that as a company, we can hit both sides of that spectrum. Uh, and I'm, I'm really grateful for folks like JJ and their, and, and his team for, for pushing the envelope forward for us. So. Yeah, I mean, we were able to leapfrog, right? So those basic use cases, don't say basic, right? It just felt basic. It felt simple to use. We were able to leapfrog that so quickly to then just say, okay, what is the most extreme use cases we need to solve? So when we started thinking about like the data exfiltration, the speed bumps to do step up authentication, that was, holy crap, this is so seamless. We were able to, to really just get that quick ROI and say, how do we then push it to scale, right? I know we, we harped on that aspect, but that... The data exfil, the idea to do step up authentication, speed bumps, those tar pits really helped us to jump up and, and really process every single mail, right? And, and secure the entire transaction within the real estate market. All right. Well, JJ Aga and Ryan Noon, thank you both so much for joining me uh, to yeah have a bit of a chat about, uh, I guess, you know, what materials looking like in an environment with 40,000 uh, 40, mailboxes. Very interesting stuff. I'm sure some, some of the listeners found that very interesting. Cheers. Thank you, Patrick. Yeah, thanks.
That was JJ Aga and Ryan Noon there with a chat about material security. I do hope you enjoyed that interview. You can find them at material.security. And that is it for this week's show. I do hope you've enjoyed it. I'll be back in a couple of days with a seriously risky business podcast with Tom Uren. And you do have to subscribe to our other podcast feed to get that one. Uh, But until then, I've been Patrick Gray. Thanks for listening.